welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. This is, in fact, the second time that we're recording this podcast. The first time we recorded a couple of hours and didn't sit with us somehow, didn't didn't feel right. And one thing that came up when we were talking later after that first recording session was realizing that we were each sort of thinking about totally different audiences. Like maybe that's just the nature of this podcast is it's going to have a necessarily... I don't know, heterogeneous audience, but you were saying, well, you know, God, another podcast on Aleister Crowley, that's like the most normie thing ever, which in the kind of weirdo sphere, like if you're looking at like other, like a cult podcast or something, then yeah, Aleister Crowley is yesterday's news. But I pointed out that in my world, in the academic world, uh, Aleister Crowley is still pretty goddamn strange. I actually, I actually was telling somebody, one of my colleagues this recently, I, I said basically just that, and he's like, "Oh yeah, Alistair Crowley's fucked up. <laughs> that's that's really weird." So, that's you know one of the things I always tell my students: know your audience. And so that actually presents an interesting question for us in particular for this podcast that we're trying to do: is how to approach Alistair Crowley. He is, depending on who's listening, either a totally marginal, unimportant, perhaps rather mad figure, and for another part of the audience is going to be maybe the most important possible figure. Yeah. And for a, a, maybe a, an even smaller portion of the audience, he's an unknown figure. So maybe we should like just give oh, a yeah. brief, we should start with yeah, that. just a brief bio. Well, just a, maybe you should do that, Phil, you're a professor. <laughs> if I can remember his bio, um, just no, the briefest, preparation. the briefest of all bios, like, okay, so he, yeah. he was the, well, I can tell you some things I know about him. He was the scion of a prosperous brewing family. He inherited a large fortune from his, his family. Um, his family were evangelical Christians and he rebelled against that upbringing. He was a fine chess player, a mountaineer, kind of a general adventurer, and at a certain point got really interested in the occult, was at first a member of the Golden Dawn organization, which is a kind of classic 19th century occultist group, and then embarked on his own career of occultism, I don't know, that I, there, there's a bio. Yeah, it's <laughs> not a very good one, but uh, that's that's that'll he he he's basically he was called in his time the wickedest man on earth because he was a whipping boy of the British press. Basically, he was uh, mm. this he he was a bit like the the kind of satanic priest of um, of early twentieth century Britain. He was just this this enfant terrible who represented everything reprehensible about the. The decadent movement and its aftermath, and he was, he was uh, reviled and also, but also kind of, uh, he was a titillating uh, figure, and he lived through a lot of hard times, but he really gave his life to 
propounding this kind of magical philosophy or this system of magic. He spelt magic with uh, CK at the end to, to distinguish it from the type of charlatan magic that he saw being practiced elsewhere. And he, uh, he really gave his life to trying to like develop the system and also to proselytize magic and, and to, to normalize it almost or to make it uh, a viable endeavor in the modern world. Um, so one question, one threshold question for people who maybe don't know a ton about Crowley is, is he a Satanist? Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody was listening to this being like, oh, shit, am I going to have to listen to like a whole hour and change about some Satanist? So we should probably maybe address some of the more lurid uh, rumors about him. Right. Some of which are true. Some, I mean, like, yeah. for example, for example, the idea that he presided at magical orgies, totally true. Um, one of his great, I don't know, it's not an innovation, but certainly one of the things that he propounded uh, was sex magic, which is magic energized by human sexuality. He had a remarkably uh, kind of age of Aquarius, kind of proto-hippie attitude about human sexuality, but... Uh, Needless to say, that was one of the things that made the British press type him the wickedest man in the world. Right, exactly. He was. Acu- what about the Satan thing? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I want to defend Crowley because I enjoy his work and respect him tremendously. And I think that, in particular, the text we're looking at today, the introduction to magic and theory and practice, is uh, a really, really powerful piece of writing. At the same time as I don't want to, you know, try to argue that he was innocent or unfairly treated. There, there's a moment in this book where he actually defend, that doesn't defend, but explains the, the uses of blood sacrifices. And he actually says at one point mm-hmm. that the best blood sacrifice is a, an innocent child. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and another point, he, he shows off, he's talking about magic and he says uh, the different types of magical operations you can you can perform and one of them he calls works of destruction and he says uh, works of destruction which may be done in many different ways one may fascinate and bend to one's will a person who has of his own right the power to destroy as if that makes it okay Mm. Uh, then he says (laughs) one may employ spirits or talismans Uh, the more powerful magicians of the last few centuries have employed books then he says in private matters these works are very easy if they be necessary an adept known as the Master Therian, and that's him, he's talking about himself, once found it necessary to slay a Circe who was bewitching brethren. He merely walked to the door of her room and drew an astral T and the symbol of Saturn with an astral dagger. Within 48 hours, she shot herself. So there's this, Whoa. yeah, so, so he, he, you know, he made his bed, then he had to sleep in it kind of thing. Like he, he was right. kind of marketed himself as the wickedest man. Now, is it true yeah. that he magically slew this woman? The only reason he would allow himself to write it was because he knew that no one would believe it. Because if mm-hmm. people actually believed in, in, in this stuff, then he would have been charged with murder. So it, this, the, the tricksterishness of Aleister Crowley, was he a Satanist? No, I don't think he was a Satanist. But was he consciously creating that persona? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. He, he Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. not unfair to call him that. Well, and also there are modern Satanists who would say, you say Satanist like it's a bad thing. And it's worth noting that there is a current of modern Satanism that takes some of its cues from Crowley simply because 
the idea of what Satan is for some people is quite other than what we customarily think of Satan. Um, normally think of Satan as the personification of all evil in the world. But there's another way of thinking about Satan as a figure of human potentiality, of the purely human will to create itself, to fulfill itself in whatever way it sees fit. So, I mean, I don't know if I want to get into that whole thing, but suffice it to say, the subject gets actually surprisingly complicated when you start looking at it. But anyway, I, I feel but that's like I'm the, heading No, to... that's a great point because I think from that perspective, like if we look at Satan the way many Satanists today look at that figure, uh, he's he's a symbol of self-fulfillment, of self-realization. So, mm. and that goes all the way back. I mean, he's the one angel that stood up to God and, you know, created his own kingdom. Mm-hmm. And there's even in... You know, Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, there's a certain romantic grandeur to Lucifer, to Satan. Mm. And uh, that exists uh, today in some forms of Satanism, which basically Satanism is about the, the, the realization of your own will in this world. That through strength, through the, your own strength of will, you can transform yourself and therefore you can affect change. So that's pretty yeah. close to what Crowley was arguing. So in that case, then I would say, yeah, Crowley was definitely a Satanist. Mm. Yeah. It's worth noting also that even if you say Satan is a figure of evil, however you wish to define evil, but Satan is the concentration of everything bad in the world, one thing that marks out a magical path, or at least a magical path as Crowley defines it, from more orthodox religious ones is that the aim of magic is to to be a complete person, Right. Mm-hmm. To fully realize all of our potentialities, to be truly who we are. And if you say that that is the goal for being a person, if that's the goal of magic with a K, then the path of magic means being down not only with the parts of yourself that you're happy to claim, you know, the parts of yourself that are loving and compassionate and, you know, the part of yourself that, uh, I don't know, helps a lady, an old lady across the street with her groceries or whatever. There's also the part of you that is selfish. Right. And self-aggrandizing and vain and cruel. And you may not like that part of yourself, but you have to acknowledge it's part of yourself. And you have to figure out how to give voice to that in a way that it harmonizes with all the other parts of yourself. The, The aim is not purity, but rather wholeness. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, you know, it's kind of funny if you tell somebody, yeah, my spiritual life is really oriented to wholeness. You know, that sounds very sweet and pastel colored and new age. Right up until the point you realize that it also means embracing the deceiver in you, you know, deceit and arrogance and resentment and cruelty, like all these things that, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and by any reasonable standard, we shouldn't be practicing those parts of ourselves, right? Like, those aren't the parts of ourselves that make the world a better place. But I think the idea is not to give vent to those things, but to work with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could almost use, like, the terms of alchemy, that you start with some very base matter, 
You know, you start with shit and through a series of operations, you turn it into gold. That's the idea. There's a Gnostic, obviously, a very strong Gnostic vein in, in Crowley's thinking about this. And in this whole movement, this whole human potentiality movement that kind of defines really uh, a good chunk of 20th century spirituality, it's a Gnostic thing. It's the idea that the wholeness that you're attaining is kind of a transmutation of your whole self to a higher level. So the idea is that you need to acknowledge the darkest parts of yourself, if only to turn them into light or to bring them into the light so that they can be cleansed and purified. I mean, there are, there are, there are two paths in magic. We might talk about that later. There's a line from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, which was a one of the early Gospels that were written about Jesus very clearly a Gnostic gospel. There's a, there's a, there's a line in it, uh, show me the stone that the builders have rejected for that is the cornerstone. In fact, that line may actually recur in the official New Testament. I'm not sure. I was going to say, I, yeah. that sounds familiar from the New Testament. Yeah. What that line means to me, at least, is like the one thing you don't want to look at, the thing you pretend isn't there, is the most important thing you should be looking at right now. That in itself, that yeah. that philosophy or that that idea, is central to the the transformation that is uh, that is uh, valued in magical practice. Is that you have to take the whole person. You can't just pretend. You can't fake it till you make it. You have to actually make it. You have to figure out what your true will is, and your true will, discovering what your true will is, involves facing your own darkness and diving deep down into yourself and seeing through your your delusions and your illusions, right? And I can say that this may sound a little bit esoteric and recherche, but it actually has some very down-to-earth and practical applications. One of your guys, James Hillman, once said that psychology is the mythology of modernity. And I think that was a pretty wise statement. And among other things, it can be taken to mean that a lot of what is called magic in olden times is now yeah. called psychotherapy. And so one particular thing that we associate with the old-time medieval grimoire magicians, ceremonial magicians, is the summoning of demons, right? All right, now we're talking. That's exciting. But it's often been pointed out that the psychotherapeutic practice of naming your fears or naming your anger or, or like talking to these different angry, fearful, hateful parts of yourself and talking to them and bargaining with them, you know, talking to them maybe with compassion, but also firmness so that they know their place, but that you can kind of also work with them and get them to do stuff with, for you. Like, this is a pretty common psychotherapeutic practice, and it's really almost like a version of something much more, I don't know, exciting <laughs> or dramatic. I guess that's the word I'm looking for with, you know, having a, a triangle of art with a candle at each corner and esoteric sigils graven upon the corners and whatever. You can also just be in a psychotherapist's office talking to a guy in a turtleneck and addressing your fears if it's a person in the room. And I will tell you, actually, from my own experience as a depressed person who's had to work through some shit, not necessarily the whole naming your fear thing, but just like the sense of having to be real about who you really are. And that means 
being real about the darkness as well as the good stuff. Not in a sense that you're going to excoriate yourself and you hate yourself for the bad parts of yourself because that never really goes anywhere. Being real about those things and learning how to work with them effectively. Like, for example, depression itself is a motherfucker. I mean, if anybody listening to this has experienced clinical depression, you know what the fuck I'm talking about. You know, depression is the biggest, baddest, meanest of demons. And when you're in the middle of a depressive episode, you don't have anything good to say about depression. All you want is it for it to be gone. If somebody could hand you a pistol with a magic bullet in it that would allow you to kill it, you would. And yet, I'm just speaking for myself, the only way out for me was to accept on some level um, the depression, to, to accept it, to be like, okay, I see you. Uh, and and I guess I'm I guess we're gonna have to talk. I guess we're gonna have to find mm. some way of communicating here. Yeah, um, no, for sure. I don't know. And it sounds like we've moved rather far afield from uh, from Crowley. But when Crowley says at the beginning of the passage that we're discussing today, the introduction to magic and theory practice, you know, the first thing he says is this book is for all, for every man, woman, and child. I have written this book to help the banker, the pugilist, the biologist, the poet, the navvy, the grocer, the factory girl, the mathematician, the stenographer, the golfer, the wife, the consul, and all the rest to fulfill themselves perfectly, each in his or her own proper function. You know, when he says that, he's talking about how this is for everybody, that's kind of what I take him to mean, that he is stumbled upon principles which we can call them psychological if we, uh, if we want, or we can call them magical. He is stumbled upon principles that are of immediate and urgent relevance to everyone. And I do believe that if you understand him correctly, if you understand what he's on about, uh, there is, in fact, a lot of real gold buried in some of these admittedly perplexing and puzzling and difficult-to-read pages. introduction is fairly straightforward but the book from a, from a purely uh, readability standpoint goes kind of downhill from there because it is <laughs> it is filled with esoteric language references to other texts that are impossible to find complicated digressions into magical theory and a kind of like implicit uh, or an assumption in the text that you know what neoplatonism is or what you know porphyry said or whoever <laughs> 
Right. So, so exactly. there, there's a lot of that in there. So I don't know how success. Well, I mean, the book isn't uh, widely uh, read today. I, I would think uh, compared to other self-help books, let's call them. So yeah. I don't think he was that all that successful. Even though, um, and we discussed this last time, but uh, I mean, you can't even calculate. It'd be hard to quantify the effect that Crowley had on on the modern world. He had a huge, huge influence. Like he he's on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's, you know, the Sergeant Pepper album yeah. from the Beatles. So. So, but so the introduction we're looking at is basically a description of he's trying to redefine magic in such a way that the reader will be able to understand what he means by it. So the first thing he does is he changes the spelling. He adds a K at the end. So he's like, I'm talking about something different from what you think I'm talking yeah, not about. Not stage magic, and, but yeah, and something th- different. Yeah. And then he describes, he defines magic as the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. So there's no candles or magic circles or symbols in that. It's a very straightforward definition. What What is magic? It's the science and the art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. So it includes everything. And he says later on, every intentional act is a magical act. And I think he has good reason to say that. We might get into that later. But So the idea is that magic is the, the means by which a willing being, a human being endowed with true will, can affect change or can make things happen in the world and transform it. So that's fairly straightforward. And his example is like getting a book printed. So you send a, you write your book, you send it to the printer, you get it in bookstores. And that in itself is a magical operation because you're, you're doing a bunch of things in order to get a very specific effect. Who would disagree with mm-hmm. that? I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward. Um, then he has a postulate and the rest of the chapter is a series of theorems that basically um, derive from this postulate or support it. The postulate is any required change may be affected by the application of the proper kind and degree of force in the proper manner through the proper medium to the proper object. So he's he's insisting on this idea of the, the properness of every aspect of the operation. So in order to make change in the world, you need to know exactly what you're doing. You need, you need to know exactly how to do it. But if you can figure those things out, then anything is possible, literally anything, because he says later that any force in the universe can be transformed into any other force. So there's actually no limit to what can be done in this universe so long as you know what it is you want to do and how to get how to do it. Easier said than done, obviously, but uh, that, again, is fairly straightforward, I think. Where things become interesting for me is, is theorem number six, where he says, every man and woman is a star. And that's a quote from the book of the law i believe another text he wrote and he says he explains it by saying that is to say every human being is intrinsically an independent individual with his own proper character and proper motion and that i think is the key thing that he's saying what he's saying is that are you human okay good that means you are an absolute singularity you are completely independent and completely free to realize yourself, meaning your true will, in this world by whatever means necessary. That is both your duty and your, uh, your right. That is a very revolutionary claim compared to all the other things I just described. That's meaning, that, that basically means that human beings, if every man and woman is a star, what he's saying, and he, the word star is being used in its Aristotelian sense of like, the self-moving celestial bodies, right? The, the, the spheres outside the sublunary world that are have their own motion, right? So 
So if you are one of those things, you are in a sense outside of nature and are able to manipulate it and transform nature to do what you want it to do. Um, so the aim of magic is to allow you to discover what your true will is so that you become this free creature, this free self-propelled kind of self-sustaining or self-existing being, and then to equip you so that you can transform the world in conformity with your true will. Now, the first and obvious objection to that is to say, well, I mean, that's a kind of uber individualism that sounds very well, but it doesn't reflect reality that in reality we're in a state of constant sort of interdependence. We rely on each other. Uh, impossible for somebody to do something without in some way that action sending out ripples and eddies that affect other people and likewise other people affect us. So how can you say that each of us has this unique kind of groove or track that we're running on independent it's, of everyone I don't else. know. It's, it's a good question. He says that your true will is the result of a combination of your nature and your environment. So in a sense, he includes the world in what constitutes your true being or your true will. Your, your true will comes about as a result. It's not just like you're not just dropped out from kind of the ether you know, you're not like a, someone playing a video game. You're not outside the world playing it. You're 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 made up of the same forces, right. but there's a particular process to you, mm -hmm. a, a particular movement or course that is unique, and that is shaped through your environment and using your environment as part of what makes it what it is. So, like, it's not it's not this completely. Um, it's not atomistic in that sense. You're not completely outside, but there's something about you that is totally yeah. singular and that none of the causes that brought you about can override or determine. Like you, you're not reducible to the causes that brought you about. Mm -hmm. There's something unique that, that exceeds those causes. And that's the, the transcendental part of you. That's how mm. I, I understood it. I'm, I'm not sure if that's how Crowley would say, but that's logically, that's what I can kind of construct from what, what he put into this chapter and other places. Yeah. Well, that makes sense so, to me. Because yeah. later on he says nature is continuous. So that's a key thing, right? He, he starts off with some quotes, one of which comes from uh, Fraser's uh, The Golden Bough. And he argues that science and magic are united in their fundamental principles, which is basically the fundamental principle of both magic and science is that nature is continuous, that there is a rational schema that governs how things happen in nature. And that if you understand that, you can actually uh, manipulate that causal world and, and you can make things happen. So in science, you need to understand like the elemental constitution of something or its chemical composition. And then knowing that you can use that to, to do things. Uh, well, in magic, it's the same, but at the level of quality, I guess, instead of quantity, maybe that's just oversimplifying it, but at the level of of things that science ignores, the level of feelings and the level of, uh, of intentions and desires. And at that level, the same principles apply. So therefore, you can be a scientist of the mind, a kind of scientist of the soul, and use the powers of the psyche to cause change in the world. Yeah, I think he would say that magic and science are working with the same forces. It's just that science tends to suggest that past a certain point, most right. forces are negligible. Well, okay, think mm -hmm. about the moon. The moon exerts a palpable force on the tides, right? But we don't think that Jupiter is exerting any kind of force on the tides. The gravitational influence of Jupiter is a negligible force. 
However, a ceremonial magician is going to think that the place of Jupiter in the sky will exert a force just as much, not as much as the moon, but of Mm. the same quality. And it's something that the magician will think of in concert with like a thousand and one other things, whereas the scientist is aiming always at reduction, at reducing the number of causes bearing on any given situation. So we can isolate the the main cause and then so isolated it can be manipulated and, and worked with and we can adjust for it. But the magician is trying to work holistically, again, is trying to engage with all of the different forces in the universe, including ones that we were apt to think of as negligible, like, for example, the position of Jupiter in the sky. That'd be a quantitative difference. Like, so you could say that the scientist could, if if a scientist could measure the influence of Jupiter on life on Earth, then it would become scientifically viable. But I think there's a fundamental difference in the way that magicians and scientists look at reality to begin with. For instance, the scientist denies the reality, denies any intrinsic reality to the appearance of the world to humans. So, so... Uh, the light of a star isn't actually light. It's actually like photons or whatever. The uh, fact that women's menstrual cycle reflects the lunar cycle doesn't mean that there's any intrinsic connection between women or femininity and the moon as there is in traditional symbology. So, mm-hmm. But the magician says those things matter. Those things are part of reality and the appearances of things are forces of, in their own right. So whether or not you can find uh, a measurable force that Jupiter would exert on Earth to such a degree that we, it would affect behavior, let's say, or events in history, well, whether or not you can find that force at the level of quality, at the level of what Jupiter is because of its associations in myth and all that, and it has that force regardless. And it's a different way of apprehending reality. It doesn't reduce reality to some kind of underlying stratum. It just looks at real. It looks at every level of reality as being equally real, or as having an equal claim to realness. So the way things look matters. The fact that the moon is linked with the menstrual cycle and with the, the metal silver and the tides of the ocean—all this means something. It's not just meaninglessness, and that's what the, the mm-hmm. that's the the material a magician works with. He's always working at the level, or she is always working at the level of symbols and symbolic correspondence. So always at the level of appearances. And that's a fundamental difference between magic and science. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, um, that sounds right. And that's what last time in our failed attempt to talk about this, that's what I meant when I was trying to get at that talk about the primary and secondary qualities of John Locke and others, right? So the, the, oh. the scientist embraces oh, okay. the objective reality of what to the scientists are mere appearances or mere basically chimera of the human mind, you know, mm, because that that's what makes it like a magical ritual. I mean, we we're saying that he's not talking about candles and magic circles and, you know, voodoo dolls and magic and sacred daggers, but he is talking about that. That's exactly what he's talking about. He proceeds from this. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't mean to give the impression. No, and I didn't that mean to give the impression yeah, that's what that you wasn't. were trying to do. I'm just saying that it's he goes from an introduction where he defines magic in terms that I think make magic viable and then proceeds to describe magical procedures that are very much in keeping with the magic without a K that he's rejecting. You know? 
so, mm. so that's interesting. Yeah. The, the question is, there's a great, great quote by St. Paul, very short at the beginning of the book, where in Thessalonians 1, St. Paul writes, test, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. That's as, as brief uh, a precis of pragmatism as you could find, right? Like St. Paul is saying, test everything. Yeah. Prove everything is the, the way the, the translation he uses says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. That's kind of William James's modus operandi. He's like, I'm going to look, I'm going to consider every possibility and what works I will keep. So the, the, the idea is that magic makes tons of sense, including the ceremonial magic that Alistair describes later in the book. Alistair Crowley describes later in the book. I feel like we can. I feel like we're on first name basis. So, so Al Alistair describes Crowley, all yeah. kinds of rituals uh, that are that are <laughs> that are you know magical rituals through and through a sacred dagger, carving a symbol on someone's door to 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 kill them, etc. So, right. I mean, the question is, do these things work? And that's and that's that's where things can get weird. It's when we ask, well, does does magic work? Yeah, for and real. I'm not sure how. How you know? Yep. How, if if we want to go on full disclosure mode um, here, Phil, but I don't know. I'll let you. I'll let you take over now. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing it over to me. <clears throat> now comes the. Yeah. Now comes the. This uh, is. Oh, what this is fuck? where you lose your tenure. <laughs> That's right. I can say actually, I'm quite happy to cop to the magical practice of consulting the I Ching, for example, Alistair Crowley was one of the first Westerners to recognize the value of it. In fact, he, he has some great lines about the I Ching in this book. And he argues that studying the I Ching and divination with the I Ching is basically the most wholesome of magical operations. So I suppose you could say that I'm doing right. a very, very wholesome kind of magic. But leaving aside that, the question, does it work? That's the question everybody wants to ask, right? That's that's the, <laughs> There's probably more than one person listening to this podcast who's been secretly hoping that they'll discover whether this is shit is real or not. And I will say that talking about it the way I was talking about it earlier, it's like, oh, well, you know, take away the ritual daggers and pentacles and what, whatever and replace it with a therapist and you've got just modern psychotherapy. That's a way of unweirding magic and making it seem very reasonable. But the thing is that magic is weird. It's supposed to be weird. There's a there's an expression, a magical coefficient. Did you did you did you tell me about this? It or rings did I, I, I feel it like somewhere? I just saw that somewhere. Oh, I know where I saw it. It was in uh, Eric Davis's essay, Weird Shit, which is in Boing Boing, which we did a whole interview with Eric about this. So he uses the term magical coefficient. And what I took him to mean by it is that there is a sort of irreducible strangeness in magic that is, in fact, kind of necessary for magic to kind of be magic, for kind of it to do its thing. You need barbarous incantations in an unknown tongue. You know, you need the language to kind of not make sense. And in fact, there's a kind of, there's an interesting book by a guy named Joshua Gunn called, uh, I think it's, what, Occult Rhetoric? Something like that. It, wherein he argues basically that a lot of cultural theory, for example, Deleuze and Guattari, adopts an oracular and very opaque kind of tone and that that's not a bug, that's a feature, that the very opacity 
of the rhetoric allows it to have a certain kind of magical force, that this is, in fact, another way in which magic finds itself creeping back into modern life. I don't want to make, I don't want to unweird magic. There is something truly uncanny when, for example, I do an I Ching reading that speaks unmistakably to me, um, all you skeptics out there, all you so-called skeptics out there, are probably thinking, well, you know, you're just finding what you want to find in the stupid book. <laughs> like like but, that like, like that never occurred to you. Like, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, actually, part of um, being a magician, I think, is learning how to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, understanding when it's like, nope, that's just a pattern recognition error versus, no, that's some real shit. I've had I Ching readings that have blown my fucking mind. I've had I Ching readings that have changed my life. And it may be a very milk toast, plain vanilla, very safe, very uneldritch kind of magic. It's still magic, bro. Uh, divinatory magic. I still light a stick of incense and light, light a candle and mm-hmm. do, you know, fucking whole nine. I, you know, I do it up because... You know, you could just consult this shit on the internet. You could go to I Ching online and just, you know, click a button. But I need the weirdness coefficient. I need the incense and the candle, and I need the aroma Absolutely. of ritual. And why? You know what I'm saying? And by the and and, well, and the people, reason, yeah. I think the kind of basis for the weirdness coefficient uh, would be that when you use barbarous words or when you create an, an unusual environment or uh, if you if you, you you are drawing your own attention to the singularity of the real and it's fundamental you're basically just reminding yourself that that nothing is as clear cut as it seems to be you're you're opening up spaces for the imagination so you're you're saying a word that means nothing well in that non-meaning, the word can mean a million different things. So you're opening up a space for thought. Because one of the things about the I Ching, because I use it as well, is that it makes you look at a situation that looked clear-cut in a new light. Just If you just wanted to psychologize the I Ching completely and just unweird it, you could say, well, it just gives you a new perspective or kind of random perspective, like a dream about your situation. So you ask a question, then you get this bizarre um, passage from the, te- from the book. And then you, it, it forces your mind to think, to free associate, to try to find connections. And then your problem appears to you in a new light. And then you get insight yeah. into it. So it's like you're tricking your unconscious right. so, mind into coughing up an answer. But the right. answer was in you all the time. That, that would be the conventional explanation of how the I Ching works. And that could be construed as unweirding the I Ching. But I, I think it, it unweirds the I Ching, but it also weirds reality. Because what it means is that no situation that looks just stock to us is actually just another example of Situation X. For example, let's say that you're running out of funds to pay your rent and you need money and you're like, oh shit, I'm going to consult the I Ching to try to get some quick cash, okay? Which is, I, I guess, a... Uh, one way you could use the I Ching. And then the I Ching gives you a strange answer, like one meets one's equal e- equal lord in the dark alley, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so you're like, so you start to think about, the idea is that it forces on you the realization that you are not just living through a stereotypical, I need money to pay rent situation, that every situation you're in is absolutely new and needs to be approached in an absolute, absolutely new light. 
our common reduction of the world to kind of stock tropes and cliches and formulas. Oh, he's going through a divorce and everybody knows what a divorce is. Or he's getting married. We all know what marriage is. But this type of overlay in which we reduce every new moment to some kind of preconceived cliche or preconceived uh, formula is wrong. And and by using this, the, the weirdness coefficient reminds us of the newness of every moment, of every situation. So even though the I Ching has been unweirded, it's been unweirded because we've shown how it points us to the actual weird, which is at work in every new situation in life. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Now, getting back to the question of like, you know, does this materially work? That is a like, okay, go back to your example. I don't know if the example you came up with was a line that you just invented or if that's actually somewhere in the I Ching. One meets one's equal in the dark or something like that. Um, Right. But but it sounds I Ching-ish, right? Let's go with that. Let's imagine that, yeah, I need money, so I'm going to ask the I Ching, where am I going to find money? And I get this strange thing. So you ponder that. And you wait for supplementary signs, right? Maybe you cast other, uh, maybe you just keep asking more questions of the I Ching. Or maybe you just go out into the world with this reading in your mind. And then perhaps you find yourself on a dark street or you see a dark street stretching off away from the well-lit one you normally walk down. And then you think that's a sign. And it corresponds with the sign that was generated by your consultation of the I Ching. And it's that conjunction that you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to act upon that conjunction. So I'm going to walk down the street and never walked down before. And this is where the weirdness comes in that sometimes you will meet somebody there who through some unpredictable thing, like, there's a dude whose car's broken down and you're like, hey, can I help you out? And you help him change a tire. And it turns out that he owns a tire factory and he's looking for a forklift driver. I don't know. And and you just find yourself like right. talking yourself into a new job because you went down this street and you helped this guy. And that kind of thing is sort of like, well, the way we're going to explain that is it was like, well, that's a coincidence. And you can explain it by saying you could find sort of post facto functionalistic rationale for how that works. You could say, well, you're going about your day in a normal kind of way. You're reducing the number of chances for something unpredictable to happen. Unpredictable bad as well as unpredictable good. Like usually it's not a good idea to walk down ill-lit streets, right? Something bad might happen to you. But by virtue of the fact that you simply, you know, your concept, well, all that the, your divinatory act did was it made you behave in an unpredictable way, which 
made it more likely that something strange like, you know, encountering that guy and helping him out with his flat tire is going to happen. And therefore, you slightly improve the probabilities that right. something like that right. was going to happen. Right. So there's always a kind of a rationalistic kind of comeback. Now, of course, those explanations are, they're not testable. And in fact, a lot of them are incredibly unconvincing. You know, if you people will come up with like increasingly strained ways of explaining away sometimes truly extraordinary coincidences. The large sum. Should I tell the story? Yeah, if you want to. I was actually about to tell. I was actually about to come out of the closet and tell uh, my own story that of like something that blew my mind harder than it had ever been blown before. Why not? Shall I tell this story? <laughs> All right, fuck it. I've got tenure. <laughs> people can, people can, people can deal with the weirdness. So when I first started getting interested in this stuff, uh, one of the first things I read about was Aleister Crowley and Crowley's. Um, it took me a long time to kind of get much of what Crowley was saying because he really is a very difficult writer. But one thing that I understood right away was his idea of the holy guardian angel, and this is an idea that comes back to a book of medieval magic. The um, Abramelin. Yeah, um, Abramelin. 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 I can't remember. I yeah. here somewhere. I can't remember the proper title of it, but yeah, it's it's that book. I got it here. The Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> of course, you had it just lying ready <laughs> at hand. My magic shelf is right next to where I'm sitting. So. <laughs> okay. It's just one no, shelf. Very good. Um, but basically, the idea that Abramelin was playing us is the idea that every human being has a holy guardian angel and you can call it holy guardian angel or you can call it your your daimon like in the way that socrates had a daimon his daimon only ever said no and only ever told him not to do things yeah. <laughs> um or or some people talk about like um what is it the is it the third man or the fifth man or, or something the the idea like uh that there is some kind of guiding intelligence that some people are able to access in times of extreme risk, like Shackleton, for example, the Shackleton party, um, the unsuccessful Antarctic exploration party that miraculously managed to survive being shipwrecked in the Antarctic. Um, people often talk about how there's a, like a, you know, almost like a presiding spirit, like a guardian angel, mm -hmm. right? Well, the idea is that we all have that. Uh, it's just most of the time we don't listen to it. We ignore it. From a certain point of view, it is our own soul. Yeah. Maybe. It's kind of mysterious what it is. But like, you know, the this book that I read, and this is years ago, um, said basically don't sweat what it is. Just make contact with it. And the book was like really vague. It's like, how do you make contact with it? It's just like, just do it. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, oh, oh. Uh, I was like, well, that sounds interesting. So, okay. So I, so I meditated and in my meditation, I projected a thought to the universe that I wanted to be contacted by my holy and guardian angel. I didn't even know what that meant exactly. And then, uh, nothing happened and I, <laughs> and I went to bed and that night I had an incredible dream, which I'm not going to go into the details of what it was, but it was an astonishing, profound, 
uh, I'm going to sound corny, but it's like a healing dream. It was a dream that had to do with my, you know, my childhood, with my upbringing, with things that happened to me in my life. And it had an extraordinary feeling of, you know, certain long misunderstood things finally coming to light of puzzle, a puzzle piece long missing, finally clicking into place. We're fortunate enough every now and then in our lives, maybe a couple of times in our life that we get dreams like that. But I would not be surprised if more than a few people listening to this have had that kind of experience, right? And the way the dream ended was I walked out of the house I grew up in, which is in Sudbury, Ontario, and I walked into a kind of amphitheater, which, of course, doesn't exist. And it was in Toronto. And it was in a very specific place in Toronto. It was a place that I visited many times in Kensington Market. And um, I woke up from this dream. And I was like, holy shit, that was a fucking dream. I have to write this down because I'm going to forget it all. And, I, and I'm sleepy and it's first thing in the morning and everybody's asleep in the house. And I'm wandering around the house looking for something to write in. And I have this idea. There's this one drawer where years ago I secreted um, an unused Moleskine notebook. And I hadn't even thought about this in literally years, but suddenly the thought pops in my head. Oh, I've got an unused notebook. I'm going to go get it. And I take it out and I open it and out flutters a piece of paper and I pick it up and it's a parking uh, part like um like the ticket you get when you go into a parking like a ramp. parking stub or a yeah 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 from a parking ramp in Kensington Market Whoa. in the exact place where my dream ended. So I walked out of the dream and into waking life. I still have the ticket. It's sitting on my shelf. I walked out of a dream and into waking life. And here was the token of my dream. Wow. And message received. Like that is a pretty strong indication that your holy guardian angel just got in touch. So what's the Kensington Market connection? Why was it in Kensington Market? Mm, not Kensington Market in particular, but Toronto and downtown Toronto where I okay. lived for a while. Okay. Um, but but it just so happens that in my dream, you know how in dreams, you know, buildings are like repositioned in different yeah. places and or like the geometry or the city, you know, you can be in a city where you recognize landmarks, but they're all shifted around somehow. It was like that. It just so happens that a place that I lived in Sudbury when I was growing up was melded with another place that I lived in Toronto that had considerable emotional resonances to me. And this hybrid not place, it just so happens that its location with respect to certain downtown Toronto landmarks was such that I could say, yeah, oh yeah, that's in Kensington. It'd be interesting to go back to that parking lot um, for you, probably. Have you been back since? Yeah, well, I think I've parked there maybe once or twice since then. Nothing interesting happened. It's just a parking (laughs) lot, you know? 
And that's the thing. It's just like, the, you know, okay, so let's say I was trying to interpret that. Is the parking lot the important thing? You know, it would be very easy to go off and uh, to start chasing hares and be like, okay, I'm going to devote my life to understanding this parking lot or some shit. And, and it's not about the parking lot. It's not about that part of Toronto. What is it about? Well, that is a work of years, patient unraveling of like this strange symbology of the dream. Yeah. Um, not even unraveling it because that suggests that dreams are codes that are just waiting to be cracked. And I don't actually believe that. I think that dreams are dreams. They're incredible experiences and they are, and they are full of meaning. But that meaning is never 100% translatable into propositional content. Right. It's never univocal. It's never a univocal meaning that you can just yeah. like that's the freudian mistake right according to people like james hillman is that freud tended to reduce dreams to one simple meaning so he 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 made dreams into metaphors whereas dreams aren't metaphors they're symbols and symbols refract multifariously on multiple levels of analysis and interpretation they're they're more like doorways than 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 destinations they open up new avenues of thought rather than close up thoughts by giving you simple answers or solutions. Yeah. And then there was this other time I sacrificed a small child. Right. Well, we won't yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Maybe we'll edit this out. Right. <laughs> I think your example yeah. was fairly, fairly safe in the sense that, um, Oh shit. It was all, <laughs> I, I mean, get you my might... nerve up to tell this weird story and you're like, no, that's not weird at all. Uh, <laughs> Fuck you, no. Martel. That's the best I got. Well, reality's weird. So it, 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 on one level, it absolutely is weird, but you could, I mean, I could just say, well, subconsciously you remembered that you put that tick that stub in that drawer oh yeah and you made exactly it, you know like you could and that and doesn't subconsciously you did this and subconsciously did that i will point out by the way that when <laughs> we do that when we adopt that mode of explanation we are turning the subconscious mind into this godlike entity that can do anything so basically all you're doing you're like a like a kid being told to clean his room and all he does is take all of his toys and jam them under the bed. Right. Yeah. Like you're we're just... just taking all of the weirdness in the world and we're saying it's the unconscious as <laughs> if that fucking explains anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I'm not using that explanation. I'm just saying that, that, no, no, um, okay. So uh, my attitude to magic is, uh, I'm very skeptical about magic and that's, Part one. Part two is magic is real. <laughs> so yeah, I don't yeah. know like how else to say it. I mean, I can't ac account for it. There's this really good story. Um, man, I think I'm going to tell another Zizek anecdote. That guy's full of memorable stories. But uh, he once <laughs> told a story about a, uh, a physicist who visited his colleague Niels Bohr in uh, Germany in his um, country house. So he walks in and he notices that Bohr had a, uh, a horseshoe hanging above his front door. And he says, he says, is that a, is that a horseshoe? And then, um, and then Neil says, yeah, it's a, it's a horseshoe. The, you know, the peasants who live around the farmers have said that uh, it keeps out evil spirits. And then his buddy's like, well, but you don't believe in, in evil spirits. And Niels Bohr says, no, but the farmer said it works even if you don't believe in them. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So it's like, it's like, 
you know, life is strange and strange things happen. And to just kind of wave off or wave away or brush off the strangeness doesn't make the world more normal. It just makes you more, more blind, you know, like, so once I, um, recently, this is, we, we were in contact at that point. I hadn't, I mean, I dabbled in certain magical practices in my twenties. I tried some things and, um, sacrificing small children yeah exactly a child sacrifice and whatnot uh and but i was scared away from it by some uh what i perceived at the time to be really bad um what do you call it when things kind of like bounce back and hurt you (laughs) you know blowback blowback right that's the word i'm looking for some blowback from a particular ritual um Mm -hmm. and i'm using the word ritual very um it was a very uh rudimentary ritual but it worked and and a working. it seemed a working and it seemed to have an effect and it wasn't all that great i got a little scared and stopped doing it um but then uh, a couple of years ago i decided we were talking about magic and i'm like i'm gonna try something just for the hell of it and you know sure enough true to my example i came up with earlier i um i asked uh, for a large sum of money because I thought, well, if, <laughs> if I'm going to ask something, you know, William Burroughs... Might as well be useful. Yeah. William S. Burroughs said, uh, the worst thing you can do in magic is ask for money. It's the worst thing you can do. Uh, but I decided to do that. I said, um, so I made a sigil um, out of this phrase. Uh, so there's a very simple technique for making a sigil. You can Grant Morrison drunkenly describes it in a famous talk that you can look up on the internet. And I made a sigil uh, asking for a large sum of money. And the next day... I get a check in the mail um, from the like the property management company that takes care of where I live, and um, it was I never received a check from them. It was a small check. It was a check for eighteen dollars, I think. <laughs> but the check was bizarre. So on the uh, on the line where you write down, you spell out the amount. There were the words "the sum" in huge letters. The sum, like really big. <laughs> And then this next to it was this tiny sum, eighteen dollars and twenty one cents. <laughs> so, so you got was, a large sum. Yeah, I got a literally like, like a large sum. Like the word sum was very large. I've never the seen that word on a check. sum on it. It was like reimbursement for for something, and uh, it was just it was just too weird. I, I I mean I don't know what to make. I, mean, I can maybe put a photo of the check on our website so people can look at it it's pretty oh, funny. that would be that would be good yeah it's, it's a very strange looking thing i've never seen a check like that before but so did it work well i don't know maybe maybe not you know maybe it was we just got a, a funny story out of it yeah but it's weird when coincidences have a sense of humor um i find that pretty strange yeah. <laughs> so does it work well maybe it works maybe it doesn't work but all I can say once again is that like an, an, a kind of a foray into magic will just remind you of how weird reality is. And it doesn't matter whether ultimately to me, the fact that reality is so strange is more interesting than whether this or that magical ritual will get you what you want. Absolutely.
I would like to point out one thing, actually. This kind of ties back to the postulate. Any required change may be affected by the application of the proper kind and degree of force in the proper manner through the proper medium to the proper object. All of which is a little abstract. But one thing that is often commented on in sort of intro to magic books is that your magical intent, the thing you ask for, whatever that is, will manifest through a synchronicity, like a weird coincidence. Like, for example, you asking for a large sum of money and you getting a literal large sum, like some written on a piece of paper. It's important to note that, you know, when Crowley is saying that it's all about the application of the right kind of force to the right kind of object, etc., um, that is sometimes one way that that plays out is like means of manifestation. You can't do a ritual that will turn somebody into a frog, right? No matter how good a magician you are, because uh, it's physically impossible, right? Uh, you can't do a working to fly like Superman, because human beings don't fly. What will happen, actually, this is an example in Alan Chapman's Advanced Magic for Beginners. If you do a working to fly like Superman, it'll manifest maybe in a dream, or perhaps in an unpleasant synchronicity like you falling out of a 50th story window. As you say, sometimes these synchronicities have a prankish, sometimes decidedly mean sense of humor. But the point is that that intention has to find an avenue by which it can exit into the world. Because human beings don't fly, that is one avenue that's barred to it. But you falling off of a skyscraper that's possible. That can happen in our material existence. And so this is why synchronicity plays such a large role in talking about like magical results. And basically, anytime you do a successful I Ching or tarot reading, if it's successful, it's the success of it is manifested in synchronicities. Like, I don't know, like you ask a question and I mean, like the example we did before, like you find some kind of unexpected fulfillment of it in the real world, but it has to be fulfilled in some way that's materially possible. There has to be a means of manifestation. And so, you know, when Crowley is talking about the right kind of force to the right kind of object, that is partly kind of what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. But you're, you're taking us to a very interesting place now because, uh, well, I mean, on a purely pragmatic like level, I agree with you. But I think that the proposition that a magical working could create a synchronicity, especially a synchronicity involving events in the world, is even harder to account for from a purely logical or rational perspective than turning someone into a frog. Um, <laughs> really? Absolutely. Wow. absolutely. I would have thought I'd been able to... I have tried so many times to turn you into a frog and it still <laughs> hasn't worked. I'm not saying that it's... that. I, I'm just saying... Okay, let's say you do a magical working to get some quick money and then you get an image of in the I Ching of a dark alley and you go down to the first dark alley you see and you meet a guy who's looking for a new forklift driver. Okay. Well, that guy had to be there. Uh, so everything, the amount of, of physical things that had to happen for that guy to be there and to make that proposition at one point. I mean, at some point... He had to, he had to drive down that... Yeah. street he had to break down you had to be there at the same time etc a lot of different chains of causality yeah. have to be put in motion for that event to happen so in order for your working to have created that occasion 
it has to do at the purely atomic level of what's going on in the physical universe. It had to do a lot more than what would be involved in turning a person into a frog. It would have to go and determine <laughs> that guy's life decisions leading up to him going down that street at that moment. Like, so, so that's one of the... It would actually have to go backwards in time now that you mention it. It would, I mean, on a purely causal level, it would. I'm not saying Whoa. that's not how magic... Now that you mention yeah. it, that's fucking weird. Yeah, because in the example of my large sum check, the check was in the mail when I did the working. So that seems like an easy way to just put it down to coincidence. Okay, and it might have been a coincidence. But let's just say, let's just entertain the possibility that it wasn't a coincidence. So somehow the working I did went back into time and changed whatever the accountant who wrote that check, you know, would change what he was doing so that he did that, so that the check would happen at that moment. Like, how does it work? To me, that's a hugely important question if I'm going to take magic seriously. I need to understand, I need to be able to conceive of how it works. I can't just settle for a, a placeholder theory I think what you're saying makes so much sense, but what does it imply for what reality is? Like, synchronicities happen. Those are real. As Eric mentioned in our discussion the other day, synchronicities multiply when you open yourself up to them. And I'm not just saying you're making more connections because you're interested in that. Like, actual shit happens. Weird stuff starts to happen. Many, many people have recorded this. John Keel, uh, Robert Anton Wilson... These, I mean, this is something you can, anybody can verify. If you invest, if you believe in something, if, you, if you're going to entertain the possibility that the world is fundamentally magical and strange, a lot of magical and strange things will start happening to you. So how does that work? Well, what's reality made of? Those are the questions that I find super interesting because they throw into doubt some just basic assumptions that we carry in our pockets every day and that we just assume about the world. Like... Like causality. I kind of have a sketched out possible theory that, about how magic works. For me, it goes to David Hume. So David Hume famously cast doubt on a principle that was, until he came around, was considered a logical principle, or at least implicitly considered a logical principle, which is the principle of sufficient reason. Everything that happens, happens for a reason. That means everything has a cause. Um, nothing just happens out of the blue. But David Hume, very rightfully, I think, pointed out that if you imagine, for for instance, throwing a tennis ball onto a brick wall, well, okay, so you can see in your mind's eye what would happen. It would bounce back to you. But you can also imagine that the ball would just suddenly go through the brick wall. Or you can imagine the ball sticking to the brick wall and then climbing up it or rolling up the wall. <laughs> or you can, imagine, you can imagine it exploding into a million little butterflies. You could imagine it turning to, uh, to an apple. And, you, know, you can imagine any, anything is possible at the level of pure logic. What Hume showed was that causality is, is an empirical principle and never a logical principle. There's nothing in logic that tells you, like, for example, the principle of identity or the law of identity in logic. You can't imagine something that is two things at once. You can't imagine an apple that's also an orange or a triangle that's also mm-hmm. a square. It is, you can't imagine. Right. Your mind can't do it. But your mind can imagine causality going haywire or disappearing altogether. For example, you can perfectly imagine something coming into being ex nihilo, out of nothing. You can imagine something just popping up. I can imagine, I can look at my desk right now and imagine, boom, an orange is appearing on it out of the blue for no reason. 
logic doesn't dictate causality. Um, so what Hume is saying is that causality is something we derive from experience. We can observe that it has been the case, but we don't know if it will apply in the future. There's nothing logically wrong with the idea of turning a person into a frog. It's The only reason it's preposterous is that we've never seen it happen. That is the only reason it is preposterous is because you've never seen it happen. That's it. There's no other basis for arguing against it other than the fact that you have not seen it. That's it. That to me is a huge, huge, has huge implications for the nature of reality. And it points to a level of the real that's beyond the causal, potentially. I'm just entertaining ideas here, by the way. I'm not like... Yeah, we're just jamming. So Joshua Ramey, uh, an amazing uh, scholar, uh, wrote a paper about Kantemiasu's book, After Finitude. And in that, he posits a fifth type of cause that he says certain animistic societies believe in. So so he says that um, this one tribe, I can't remember who they were, an African culture... So they, they believe in all four of Aristotle's causes. So the, the matter, form, agency, and uh, purpose. So those are the four causes of traditional Aristotelian philosophy. But they say, he says they add a fifth cause, which is he calls it the divining cause. So for instance, in a society that believes in witchcraft, let's say a granary falls on somebody. Let's say a guy goes in for a nap in the granary and the granary collapses and kills him. So the culture will look for the witchcraft behind this event because an event that's that momentous needs to have some kind of reason. But it's not a reason. It's not like they're not saying that the witch, for example, or the sorcerer that caused this accident actually like used his magical powers to weaken the beams and make the granary fall. Nor did he control the mind of the farmer to go and nap there at the moment where the granary was going to fall. What they're saying is that magic operates at the level of occasion, at the level of creating coincidences, at the level outside of the causal that determines the meaning of events or the significance of particular occasions of being. Like, it's a crazy notion. It's hard to wrap your head around. But I have little glimpses of it sometimes, and I think there's something to it. Yeah, this is um, the idea of the second spear. Yeah, the second spear. Which is developed in... Evans Pritchard. What is his name? Evans Pritchard. Yeah, yeah, his, his book on witchcraft among the Azande people. It is a difficult refractory notion, but I think it's an idea that's well worth playing with. And we should probably, I don't know, I mean, we could do a whole show on that. Yeah, um, with Joshua. Because there's a lot to be said about, oh, that's a good idea. We should invite him. Yeah. That'd be, that would be dope. Now that we've um, said you know, it. Actually, that would be great because I read that essay on Miyasu and I got to the bit about the diviner's cause. I was like, right, now we're cooking. But I have to confess, I still find it difficult to wrap my head around. But what I understand, the Azande, just like us, understand that like, okay, what's the causal reason for the granary falling down? Well, it's termites. Right. I mean, they know it's termites. They don't think it's, yeah, as you say, it's not the witch like somehow changing the atomic structure of the supports of the granary to cause it to fall down. No, it's termites. But the thing is that Western metaphysics has no answer for the question, but why did that particular farmer take a nap at that particular time under that particular granary? Right, right, exactly. We say, well, it's just, we, we say, well, it's just one of those things. Yeah. I don't know, it just happened. But the Azande recognize the causality that we do, but they add another cause the diviner's cause which is 
as you say, the the logic of the occasion. Yeah. The reason why that guy was there at that precise moment. And it goes back to what you were saying about magic, not creating, not changing people into frogs, but creating synchronicities. That is a synchronicity. Yeah. The fact that the enemy that the sorcerer identified and cast a spell against happens to be there when that happens to happen. <laughs> so I've got an example, I think may, and I kind of built this out of something you wrote. So this, we can, we're both behind this, what I'm going to say now. This is an exa- a way to illustrate this causality, this fifth type of cause that might be helpful. Maybe not. Maybe I'm totally off track. Imagine that you are a scientist in a novel. Okay. Let's say that you are one of the scientists in Lovecraft's story at the Mountains of Madness. So in this story, uh, you're one of the characters and your fellow Lovecraftian characters go off to Antarctica to investigate what turns out to be a lost city that was built millions of years before humans came into being by this bizarre race of uh, strange entities from another star. So uh, let's say that you go about in the story trying to figure out what this lost city is, where it comes from, who built it, etc. So you're looking for the four Aristotelian causes. You're looking for what's the city made out of? Whoa, it's made out of non-Euclidean geometric patterns. It's very strange. So that that's addressed in the story. Who made this? Oh, it was the, I believe it's the great race of Yith, but I may be wrong, but it's this particular group of uh, interstellar or interdimensional beings constructed this city. So you've got the agent cause or whatever. Then you've got the form. What, what is, you know, so you've got all the four causes, inclu- including you figure as a scientist, you'll ask yourself to what purpose did this city exist? Why was it here? So that's another question. So let's say you answer all these questions satisfactorily and promptly in keeping with Lovecraft stories, you, you promptly go, go insane from the answers. Mm-hmm. Is there yeah. anything like you do? Is there anything this scientist could come up with, which would make even more sense of the whole thing? but that they don't come up with in what I just described. There is. That is to realize that they are a character in a novel written by L.H.P. Lovecraft. So (laughs) if they came up with that, then they would really know why this lost city is here. The divining cause is the cause that happens at the level of the narrative of life, like the kind of narrative sense-making dimension of reality. So... In order to understand, if one could understand that one was in an H.P. Lovecraft novel or story, you would understand how the lost city fits with your temperament, with the weather, with the desolate landscape of Antarctica. You would see that the whole moment, that whole universe that you're in is all tied together at the level of symbol and meaning, that it all forms a story that you can't reduce to one message or moral, but that shines with meaning at every level. So I don't know if that makes sense, but to me that, oh, yeah, yeah that, that would be to me because, yeah. yeah. So, so magic, because we went back and forth over this for a while and it's just like, it's a very satisfying way to think. It's just sort of like to think of the nature of reality as being narrative. It's just like, it's a story. That seems to be, the world is, that seems to be, ex- the world is made of stories. That seems to be exactly what the Azande people are doing in Evans Pritchard's book. And I think it's what pre-modern societies do as a matter of course. The world's a story and we have a place in this story. And therefore, if you can tap the forces that determine why things happen, you can do magic. And magic is perfectly naturalistic if you include narrative and meaning in your conception of reality.
you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.